Uh, good morning. I got a hello, Houston. Wow. Uh, so yes, my name's Houston, church planning resident here at The Vine. And today we are continuing our series in Zephaniah. Now, if you were here last week, we're going to do a little bit of last week on Zephaniah today. Um, but if you're here last week, you'll notice that we have skipped a little bit of chapter two. Now, I don't mean to be controversial. Uh, no, the, what Ruby read today is very indicative of the whole of chapter two. And so I thought that last week we read a very large section and uh, poor Zach had a lot of difficult words and very long. And so I just wanted to shorten a little bit. So don't be alarmed. And we still believe the goodness of this story of the, of the book of Zephaniah. And so today we are continuing in Zephaniah. And we're continuing this series that we are calling the Day of the Lord. And we remember from last week, the Day of the Lord is what we call the time when the Lord brings justice to the earth. And remember, the Day of the Lord happens on two scales. So last week we talked about this. The Day of the Lord happens on a small scale. And this is when specific people or groups of people get the justice that they deserve. And it also happens on a large scale. And that's that time when Jesus is going to come again and he's going to set everything straight. So we have the day of the Lord small and the day of the Lord large. And finally, we'll remember from last week that when the day of the Lord comes, that the whole point of this justice is judgment for the sake of rebuilding. Always the point is to fix things and make them good. And so last week we talked about the first part of Zephaniah, where God told the people of Judah, and this is his chosen people. He told those people all the things that they were destroying, all the ways that they were destroying themselves and the people around them, and he told them what he was going to do about it. And next week, we're going to see this beautiful picture of what God is building towards in Zephaniah and all the amazing plans that he's got and the good thing that he wants to make out of this. But today, we're going to turn our attention to this middle part that Ruby read. And what we see in this part is a judgment against a city. And you know, this, this judgment against a city, it reminds me of a story from when I was 10. So we lived in this developing neighborhood, which, uh, and, and our house was on the edge of uh, kind of a wooded area. And so what that meant is that I had access to all of the scrap building supplies that I could fish out of a dumpster, much to the embarrassment of my mother, and all the trees in the woods. And so my friends and I, we built a tree house. The quotation marks is important. And so I'm 10, my little sister is five, and of course, she wants to be a part of this. She is pumped by the idea of this treehouse. So you better believe she wants to play in the treehouse too. But I would not have any of it. I made that place, and it was mine, and I made the rules in that treehouse, and one of the rules is that it was for me and not her. And so I'm up there like a 10-year-old tyrant ruling my kingdom, my single piece of plywood on a tree, 
And, and let me tell you, there was no room for girls up there, and definitely not sisters. And so, of course, my sister, she tells my mom, and that makes my mom very angry. She's so mad at me that one day she has my dad go and take away my plywood treehouse. And just like that, judgment came upon me and my city, and I was left desolate. So, of course, that's a silly example, right? That's a small picture. That's, that's a silly story of a 10-year-old kid. But as passages like this today, play, this small story played on a huge scale in the book of Zephaniah, as passages like ours today, where people start to ask questions of the Bible, people, people start to get uncomfortable. You know, it's all well and good when we tell a story about a 10-year-old being dumb to his sister. But it's another thing when we read passages like this, Right? You know, stories like this, it's, it's passages like in this Bible that lead people, the people around us, maybe even us, to start to ask questions. We ask questions about God. We ask things like, is God angry? And you know, last week we answered that question. And we said, yeah, he, he is angry. But we remember that when we dove into the text, we saw that God is angry like a parent is angry for their children. He gets angry when people hurt each other and when they follow other gods to their own destruction. I mean, parents, how many of you would be calm if someone was hurting your children? Even if the person hurting your child was another one of your children. I mean, my mom still got angry, right? So, so the answer to this question, is God angry? Yes. But we see that his anger it comes from a place of love. It's love for his people. It's love for his creation. And it's love for the people made in his image. And that's where that anger comes from. And so that's the perspective we're going to keep today when we keep going in the book of Zephaniah. That judgment and the wrath, it's still there. But when we remember what makes God angry, then I think we're going to see something a little different today than just another picture of an angry God. And this is important. Because, you know, people around us, they're asking these questions. We are asking these questions. Questions like, can God be angry and loving at the same time? But you know, they're asking other questions too. People in our culture anymore, they they tend to ask less about God being angry. And they tend to ask more questions about God being uncaring or distant. People ask things like, does God even care that there is injustice in the world? Or they look at the ways that, that Christians man, especially Christians in America, have used the Bible to hurt people. I mean, historically, especially people of color, right? And, and they say, and they say, they look at these Christians and they say, is this, is this what Christianity is about? Does this God of theirs not care about these things? So last week, we focused on idolatry. We focused on how it's destructive to people, 
and to societies and, and how that makes God angry. And this week we're going to see that when God looks out onto the world, that he sees those injustices. They do not escape his sight. And not only does he see them, he is going to do something about them. And so, where last week where we focused on the ways that God called his people to repent from idolatry, this week we're going to see God's plan to deal with the injustice in the world and to eventually fix things once and for all. And you know, there's a good chance that between last week's sermon and this week's sermon, we're going to find something that we're uncomfortable with. And you know, the truth about the Bible so often, especially books like this, is that there's always something that comes along to challenge us. You know, whether last week the idea of God punishing idolatry is offensive, or whether this week the idea of systemic injustice or, or sin in structures is offensive, Either way, the Lord's got something to challenge us with in his word. And then what I think is that, that we should consider this a feature of the book of Zephaniah, a feature of the Bible, not a bug. You know, Isaiah 55 says that God's ways and his thoughts are so much higher than ours, and that it's difficult to comprehend them. Who can comprehend them? And so it makes sense, then, that there's always a place for the Lord to challenge us in some way, to push our thinking a little bit more, and to call us to something greater. So wherever you're at today, I just want to encourage you, we're going to talk about hard things. We've been talking about hard things. But I want to encourage you that there's good here. There's a good plan for this. And so let's lean into that, and let's see what the Lord has to say to us today about this. So would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that we thank you that the messed up things of this world do not escape your sight. And we thank you also that you call us to repentance for the ways that we are messed up and the ways that we have turned away from you and walked paths of destruction. Lord, I pray that today when we sit under your word that you would speak to us, that you would reveal your good plan for us and your good way of life for us. And I pray, Lord, that you just bless our time today. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be glorifying to you, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so from the reading today, you probably noticed... Our passage has a lot to say about cities. There's a lot of judgment against them. So the question is, first question we ask is, what is God's problem with the city? Is he more of a country guy? Uh, No, in the Bible, cities tend to represent something other than just the place where people come and live together. So, In a lot of passages, including this one, the city represents the place where people, where humans, build up all the worst parts of humanity. So the idea is that uh, in the Bible, when people come together and form societies, 
more often than not, instead of pooling together all the good parts, we tend to pool together the bad parts of us. So, for example, the first part here in our passage, Zephaniah 3, 1 through 2, says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord, and she does not draw near to her God. So it says that the city is arrogant and rebellious, and that she does not listen to correction. She doesn't listen to the Lord. And so basically what God is saying is is that this city that he's talking about, it represents the worst parts of human pride. So instead of being, say, a city of peace, or a city of purity, or a city of humility, it's a city of rebellion, defilement, and pride. That's not all. If we keep going... Verses 3 through 5, we read this. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each day, each dawn, he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can feel the heat coming off of these lines. God says that this city is not only rebellious and prideful, it's corrupt. In fact, it's corrupt from top to bottom. The officials are like hungry lions. Some of your Bibles, instead of officials, are going to say the princes. The idea is that from the very top of the government, this place is corrupt. Not only that, the judges, the people who are supposed to administer justice, they're like wolves who gnaw the bones of those who need justice. And even the religious leaders, the prophets, the priests, the people who are supposed to speak on behalf of God or, or mediate between God and people, even they're all corrupt. I mean, this is a picture of a messed up city. This must be one of those bad guys, right? If you're thinking back to the story of the Old Testament, maybe you're thinking, oh, this is Nineveh, or this is Egypt, or maybe this is even Babylon. This is one of those corrupt, evil cities, right? I mean, with a list of judgments like this, it's got to be a bad guy. But then, if we read verse 5 again, we see the Lord within her, is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice, and each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. And we realize he's talking about the temple. We remember from last week, the temple is the place where God promised that he would come and meet his people, where he would live among them. So we realize he's not talking about one of those evil cities out there. He's talking about Jerusalem, the capital city of his Old Testament people. But but why is that? Why is even God's people do such messed up things? How can their capital city, the place where the temple is, how can even that be a corrupt place? 
Why is it that when people come together, that more often than not, the result is not more good, but more evil? And this is the classic question in the Bible. It's a question that we see asked from the very beginning. And in fact, if we go back to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and we go to Genesis 11, we read the story about the Tower of Babel. And so when it comes to the Tower of Babel, we read this. I've got a Cliff Notes version here. Uh, and you'll see it on the screen too. But I just want to leave a little context. You know, this is early on in the story of the Bible. God had created all of people not long before this. And he created the world and created humanity with the purpose of ruling with him and spreading the Garden of Eden across the whole world. So the picture of humanity from the beginning was they would work with God to rule the world on his behalf, make it a good place. But instead, we see this, and you can read along here. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So the Lord displaced them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so what we want to see is the problem here isn't that they wanted to build a city. It, it's that tower that we read about. And now the tower is not problematic because God hates tall things. The tower is problematic because really it's more like a commemorative statue. And it was a statue, but it's not for God. It's not to remember how good he is. It's a statue to remember themselves, to elevate humanity. And, and truly, it was a monument of their pride. So the story of Babel is, the story of the Tower of Babel is a story about people coming together. And instead of making something good, they literally build a city of sin. And the city is founded upon sinful uh, and prideful foundation. Because its purpose is to make themselves like God, to worship themselves. And so that's why God destroys the tower. And he, he confuses the language, is what it says. So basically he's saying, look, if all the people in the world keep coming together like this, the result is not going to be good. They're going to keep building one big city, one big monument to themselves after another, they're going to keep worshiping themselves, and it's going to get worse and worse. And we see that. We see that throughout the book of Genesis. Time after time, people come together, and they do messed up things to each other, and they keep new, starting new civilizations that are rooted in sin and death. And so what the Bible is saying then is that when people, sinful people, build things like cities, or cultures, or countries. They can build their sin into this thing that they're trying to make. 
And I think that for some of, the, some of us, we might, be coming, we might be becoming more and more aware of this over the past few years. And so when we go back to the book of Zephaniah, we read Zephaniah 3, it's not so surprising that even Jerusalem is broken, is it? See, it's like the, the sins of the individual people in Jerusalem have seeped into the ground, into the buildings. It's like this picture of it being a, a sort of a toxic waste spill in the area. And the things are being corrupted. And so what's God going to do about this? Does he just see it and, and he's angry and he shakes his fist and he says, oh, you just wait one day. No, he says this. In Zephaniah 3, 6-7. He says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. The Lord says here, I have dealt with this in the past. He says he has dealt with this, and he's going to do something about it now. He's saying if you look across the world, you'll see that every city that has ever been is not still standing. He's saying when you look at those cities that were corrupt throughout history, and we see that they found their fall, it should be sobering for us. You know, they thought that they were the pinnacle of the world. They thought they were the most advanced, the most good, the smartest. They thought they were the best. And God said, they did not listen. And they got their just reward. And it's like God just keeps saying to culture after culture, this, from verse 7, he says, I said, surely you will fear me. You accept correction. And then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. He's saying that if they would just humble themselves, if the people would just recognize their own brokenness and listen to the Lord and receive his correction, and, and live the way that he's asking them to live, that it wouldn't have to turn out this way. But if you're paying attention to the story of the Bible, you'll know that it doesn't work that way. The people are sinful, and that sinful people will always become corrupt and corrupt over time. And so the problem is, or the promise is, that God is going to do something about it. And let's see what he does as we go on. Verses 8 through 10. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. 
For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Man, this part, this is pretty consistent with the trajectory that we would expect, right? It feels angry. There's a lot of talk about God's wrath here. And maybe this is what we're expecting when we come to this part. But don't miss where this passage is going. Verses 9 and 10 say this, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. We see here that God's wrath, the the anger, the fire of his anger, that it says, is going to consume the world. But that that fire is not destroying, but purifying. See, it's this picture, this wild picture of the whole earth being engulfed in flames. But instead of people being destroyed, the people are healed. In fact, we see this picture of God bringing people from the farthest corners of the world to him. And he's changing their speech to a pure speech. He's saying that that curse from the Tower of Babel, when the languages were confused and people were scattered, will be reversed. And that everyone will speak one language again. But this time, instead of building towers and monuments to ourselves and worshiping humanity, we're going to work together and we're going to serve God. And we will use our shared language to glorify Him. Friends, Zephaniah is showing us a picture of a time when people from all different ethnicities and cultures and languages are going to come together and serve and worship the Lord together. But he's saying it only comes through fire. And in fact, he's saying it only comes when God's wrath is completely poured out. And if you're paying attention to the story of the Bible, you'll catch that this is the part where Jesus comes in. See, the gospel tells us that Jesus himself came to the world and he lived the perfect life. He was a perfect human, a perfect citizen, and he didn't contribute to these sinful structures of humanity. And in fact, he spoke against them. And because of that criticism, he was killed for it. He was beaten and mocked by a corrupt government. Those officials were like lions who sought to devour him. And he had a rigged trial by judges who, instead of bringing justice, were like wolves looking to pick his bones clean. And those religious leaders who ought to have known better were fickle and treacherous to him. And even the priests profaned what was holy by condemning to death Jesus. They did violence to him who was righteous. And then he was crucified. And on the cross, the Lord poured out 
all of this wrath, all of this fire of the Lord's anger, all of that anger that was stored up for the ways that people had messed up and hurt each other, even those people that did that to Jesus, even you and me, that wrath was poured out on him. And friends, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can have hope that the wrath of God is satisfied. We can have hope, I can have hope, that the punishment that I deserved for all the ways that I have contributed to an unjust society, to all the ways that I have been corrupt, for all the ways that I have sinned against other people, I can have hope the payment has been made for that. So then what do we say? Does that mean that God doesn't care about the messed up things that people are still doing? You know, when we look at passages like Zephaniah, we can be sure that God's heart for justice in the world has not been squelched. And in fact, I think that, if anything, it's been amplified. Because now... Because of Jesus, he has a new, renewed, and transformed people who can go into the world and help do something about it. And so as we think about what do we do with a passage like this? How do we apply this to our lives? I want to challenge you to take seriously what the Lord says about justice in the book of Zephaniah. You probably remember last week I read this from Micah 6.8. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. It's to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so as we ask, what does it mean to follow Jesus in light of passages like Zephaniah 3, we're reminded of that verse from Micah 6.8 again. We're called to do justice. We need to love kindness. And we need to walk humbly with our God. So as a people who do justice, let's pursue justice in our communities and in this world. Let's love kindness so much that we are generous and loving to those around us. Especially the marginalized. And man, let's be humble enough to recognize that we're not going to do it perfect. And that there's going to be times when we're trying, and we've got good intentions, but we're not going to do it well. And let's be humble enough to own that. To say, I've not been good. And let's be humble enough that we'll keep walking with our God. And that we'll keep pursuing these things. Even when it's hard, or when the world doesn't understand. If you don't know Jesus, I'd encourage you to consider this picture of him today. The Bible says that humanity is broken. The Bible says that the things that we make eventually lead to injustice and destruction. And the Bible calls these things sin and death. But the promise of the Bible is that God does not overlook evil in the world. He's a just God. 
a perfectly just God. But he's also a loving God. His desire is not to punish. His desire is to forgive. And he wants people to turn away from their sinful and death life, lives of sin and death to him. Because he wants to forgive. So if you don't know Jesus, I'd encourage you, pray to him today. Admit to him that all of that messed up stuff in the world is not out there, but it's in here. And ask him to forgive you, because he will. And not only that, he's going to start the process of changing and transforming you. And over time, and all at once, he will make you into a new person. And friends, what I want us to see today is that it is only because of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can even start to talk about things like being just people. And it's only with the transformation from the Holy Spirit that we can start to think about what real justice even is. And and it's only with the love of God displayed through Jesus and being caught up in the beauty of that, that we can, in good faith, start to move to do good in the world around us. God still cares about what's happening in the world. He cares about the brokenness around us. So much so that he sent his son to die on the cross to deal with it. And make no mistake, that final day of the Lord is coming. There's a day coming when Jesus will return, and he's going to make all things new. He's going to bring people from all over the world throughout history to himself. And friends, we can be sure that Jesus is building for himself a new kingdom. In fact, he is building a new city, a good city. And we get a glimpse of this city. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, when Jesus comes again, He's going to make for himself the ultimate city where people from every tongue, tribe, and nation live together and there God will live among us. And like the Bible says over and over, there he will be our God and we'll be his people. Let's pray. Lord, we just recognize that books like Zephaniah are hard. That there is something that doesn't, and something hard for all of us, no matter where we're at, Lord. And so we just pray that, that through your Spirit, that you would start to work in our hearts, that we could lean in to this good and this truth that you've shared with us through Zephaniah. And I just pray, Lord, that as we go off from here, that we would be people who reflect you well that we would care about the things that you care about, that we would love the people that you love, and that we would be about your business in our time on earth. Lord, we just thank you 
that because of your Son, that we have forgiveness for sins, that you have healed us, and that you transform us, Lord. And I just pray that you would, as we go from here, continue to make us into your people, into people who reflect Jesus and his gift of life to us. Thank you for everything you give us, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.